I feel like more of a dad today than a pastor. And, um, and so I hope this is really encouraging for you. But this is just something the Lord's been doing in me, and I, I felt led to, to kind of talk about it, share it today. So, um, so here we go. We inadvertently live our lives always wanting what we don't have or to be who we are not. It's kind of our default in our culture. So I'm going to just give you some examples. We cheer on sports stars who live, if we're being honest, pretty apathetically, filling their endless voids with cars and houses and social media posts. We envy movie stars who can't keep a marriage for five years without looking for what's next. We grieve not being a blogger we follow who is depressed and anxious all the time at keeping up the appearance that really isn't them. We jealously grudge the sibling who always succeeded and got praise. We see ourselves as failures because we aren't what others are. To make it worse, our society is built on awarding and shining a light on those very people. So, so how many of us have heard of a faithful dad being interviewed on the Today Show for having an outstanding character? You, you know what I mean? How, how many Nobel Peace Prizes have been given to the mom who sacrificed her ambitions to be present for her kids? How, how many conferences, church conferences, feature the unknown but loyal and devoted pastor of the 40-person church down the street? How many Grammy Awards are given to the janitor at the high school who self-released the real, raw, and authentic album of his songs he's written over the years? So we have, at our most authentic level, a society that celebrates the work of our hands most often at the expense of our identity, integrity, family, and ourself. And this has been further progressed by social media. So think about this. All of our anxieties, in some way, shape, or form, come from the fact that we are failing to live up to identity, but not to our own, to other people's identity. We're never content with our jobs, with our relationships, with our churches, with our families, with our wardrobes, with our cars, etc. And the only explanation, the only explanation for living in discontent is a failure to be somebody else that we're not. It's the only explanation. Being content, this is, this is a huge kind of statement for today. Being content does not mean being lazy or not having ambitions. That's not what we're talking about. Being content means you're completely satisfied in every season, in every circumstance, because you trust that Abba has you right where you need to be for then and there. Being content is living in the moment. The only, listen to this, I feel like I'm a TED talker right now, and this is why I hated this, but, you know, I felt that's what the Lord wanted to do. Being content, living in the moment, the only real moment is right now. Okay? Y'all with me? Y'all good? The only real moment is right now. Yesterday's already happened. Tomorrow hasn't happened yet. Only now is actually happening now. Right? So being content is being you, and that being enough. Being content is being you, and that being enough. We see from Genesis 
that we innately recreate who and what we are. He's, he gives that to every living creature. You are to produce what you are of the same kind, he says. Okay? That's why Jesus came, pointing back to Tuesday night if you were here, to proclaim the good news to the poor. That's Luke 4.13, and he's quoting Isaiah. Which was not, the good news, was not a movement or a mission. It was a kingdom. Jesus came to set us free from the oppression of false identity. The biggest devil we face today, though, is this, this system that we have and a religious system that we have that's all based on false identity. You becoming somebody other than who you are, right? So for me to be a superstar, I would have to lay down my contentness being a dad and a pastor of a small church to have ambitions and to shove people out of the way to be somebody that I'm really not in order to be a superstar that's praised as somebody who is great. So, translation, in order to be great on your own, in order to be great on your own, you have to lay down who you are and become somebody who is great in the eyes of everybody else except you. In our culture, the goal is to become the fantasy you. Not to enjoy the normal and mundane real you. We don't enjoy our Monday mornings, for example, reading the Gospels or reading a good book with a fresh cup of coffee as we welcome another week of our life, right? We dread Monday mornings and dream of what will be if we could just get through Monday mornings, right? I mean, that's the, that's the thing, like, man, it's Monday. Pra what? Praise God. So every morning, Monday morning, wake up. I mean, think of this. What if we woke up on Monday mornings? Doesn't matter where you are. Doesn't matter what you're, you know, you got coming up. You wake up and you open the Bible. You open a good book, whatever you're doing. And you sit there and you read and you have a cup of coffee and you breathe and you watch the sun come up. And you, as a son or daughter of God, say, welcome new week. Amazing, right? And then you go into your Monday and everybody else is losing their ever-loving mind and you're just fine. You're steady, you're at peace, right? So that's reality. Instead, we, and I say we because I'm, you know, chief center number one. Um, or not chief, not anymore, but, you know, whatever we call that. And um, chief of the one who fails at this. And I, uh, we typically wake up on Monday mornings and we're like, uh, I don't want to get up, it's Monday, you know, or whatever. You know what I'm saying, right? And definitely we did, uh, you know. And, um Hit a long, snooze, 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 snooze. And then you wake up, and you're always playing catch-up because you snooze too long, right? The whole day, you're catch-up, 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 catch-up. And we never just live in the moment, ever. We're all looking toward Friday, and when Friday gets here, let's just be real, this is me. When Friday gets here, we can't fully enjoy Friday because we're dreading the Monday that's coming after the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Am I right? Am I right? Does anybody else feel that? Does anybody else go on vacation and you can't enjoy the last couple of days of vacation because you know vacation's about over? Do you know what I'm saying? Right? So, okay, it's different. Well, kind of. But, we're, so we're losing, this is a, I, I wrote this and I was like, thank you, Lord, it's real good. Ready for this? We're losing the present in pursuit of a future that we can only reach by way of the very thing that we're giving up, the present. I'm going to say that one more time because that was, that was too good for everybody to just kind of be like, whatever. So, we're, we're losing the present 
because we're in pursuit of a future that you can only reach by way of using the very thing that we're losing, which is the present. The only way you can get to tomorrow is living through today. But we're throwing away today because we're looking forward to tomorrow. The only way you can get to tomorrow is through today. So we're always in pursuit of something that is not real. You know what I'm saying? Okay, so we can enjoy the beauty, for example, of unconditional relationships. This is a word or or a phrase or a title that the Lord's given me lately that I've really been diving deep into, unconditional relationships. What does it mean for us to have relationships with people that are not based on conditions? Like, what does it mean for me to have a friendship with, you know, uh, all of you guys? I was going to point you out, Evan, specifically, but then I didn't want to, like, isolate everybody else. So what does it look like for me to have a friendship with all of you guys? But there's no expectation. Like, there's no condition. This is, this is, how, all right, this is how relationships work today, right? This is the thing I, I write a lot, um, and, and this sounds really morbid, but don't take it like this. But I write a lot in my journals, and I'm writing in my head. I'm thinking, when I'm dead somebody's going to pick up this journal and be like, oh, my Lord, that's what he thought. You know what I'm saying? So this is, this is the way I write, so it's really weird. But anyway, so I write, I write on this a lot. And I think the biggest struggle as a pastor is the fact that there is this feeling, not here but just in general, that you have no unconditional relationships with anybody other than your family. You know what I mean? Like, for example, like I'm your pastor and we're good as long as I say what you like and say what you believe and line up with your thoughts or, or whatever. And the minute I step outside of those conditions, it's psh, Right? Which is, I mean, that's why people don't want to be pastors, because they can't be themselves. Do you know how many pastors I talk to that don't even believe half of what they preach? They believe the right stuff, but they preach the wrong stuff because that's what everybody else wants them to preach. And if they didn't preach the wrong stuff, everybody else would leave. Their job is based on conditional relationships. And they are stressed out of their minds, right? Suicide rates are higher in pastors than almost any other profession other than movie stars. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's just unbelievable. And it's because you don't have any unconditional relationships. So what if I walked in this room today and I said something that you didn't agree with? Do we have a family that is willing to say, you know what? I don't agree with that, but we're still brothers and sisters. Or, you know, and are we willing to have a family? This is like if Morgan comes to me and says, hey, Josh, this is kind of what I'm feeling. Here's how I respond to that. If I don't agree with that, I'm going to assume she's right and I'm wrong until proven otherwise. Just for the sake of unity. You know what I'm saying? Because odds are she probably is right. You know, it's the same thing with Jordan. I don't do a great job of this at all, but I'm trying my best to do this. When me and Jordan and she's all she's typically right. Okay, typically. But we'll be like, I'll be like, no, and I'm gung-ho, like, this is how it should be. And she's like, no, this is how it should be. And I'm like, no. And then I start realizing I'm actually wrong. And so then I'm in recovery mode of, like, shifting my views to be a little more like hers so that it sounds like I was right all along, you know. And, um, right? But in, in my relationship with Jordan, and this is why I love being around my family so much, is that, like, you can't get away. So, like, my family can disagree all day long, and we're still family. You can't, you can't get away from that. I'm like, what, what does it look like for us to have, this is a complete rabbit trail, but for us to have a church, and we talked about this a little bit before, but like of unconditional relationships. We're like, we can all have 45 different beliefs about 45 different things and still be completely unified as one church. I'm, okay, amazing. That's, that's where we should aim. And it sounds good. Like all of y'all, when I said that, was like, amen, until somebody does something that steps outside of your conditions, Right? But that's what we're aiming for. So, 
We can't enjoy the beauty of unconditional relationships because if we're being real, and this is my past, not now, this is my past, we're too busy using relationships as pawns to get us to the next level of our identity games. When is the last time we enjoyed the presence of another just for the pleasure of their company? I mean, let's just all be real. Maybe we do this a lot, but typically most of our relationships, somewhere if you dug down in the surface, we're in that relationship for something that betters us. And if it doesn't better us, we'll scoot it to the side because it doesn't really matter. This is how our society is built, right? We, we don't just enjoy, like, when's the last time you sat down with lunch for somebody with no agenda just to enjoy sitting with that person? We, we talk almost exclusively in this postmodern church world about callings and assignments and vision because we need to be always looking ahead to give meaning to the now. Think about this. Why do churches spend so much time talking about your big, grand, amazing assignment and calling? When most of the people that they're talking to are not going to do, in the eyes of the world, being grand, amazing things, praise God. We don't need a million movie stars. We need a million dads. But, but the church is so busy telling everybody they're going to be big, famous movie stars or whatever that we're completely negating the fact that when those people become dads and they're actually where they're called to be, they're going to see that as not where they're called to be because we've been too busy telling them their assignment is too big. That is big. Anybody could be a movie star because anybody could be a poser. Right? And that's not a shot. Maybe it is a little bit. Anybody can be a movie star. It takes guts to be a dad. It takes guts to be a mom. It takes guts to be a friend or a daughter. Or, right, you know what I mean? It, it takes that. It takes nothing to be a movie star. I was as broke as anybody could imagine and made it to the top of the church world easy. You can do it. If you got an ounce of talent and you look cool, you can do it. No, I mean, you can. It's so easy, it's not even funny. But being a solid dad, that takes guts. That takes prayer. That takes character. It takes integrity. That's what it takes. So, so it's not, it's not. Even though we talk almost exclusively in this postmodern thinking about calling assignment vision, that we need to always be looking ahead to give meaning to the now. No, no, no. It's only in terms of legacy that the future is of value. Only in terms of legacy. Only in terms of me giving purpose to how I operate with my daughter or with my wife or with you guys, looking ahead to how that's going to bear fruit later. That is the only time that that has any worth in the now. Right? But outside of that, it is never, never at the expense, the value, never at the expense of what is real right now, which is the only truth. Okay? So we talk so much about the future that we scoot aside the now, but the future means absolutely nothing unless we learn how to live in the now. So our aim should be teaching people to be content being whatever they are in this season, and that will produce whatever the Lord needs it to produce. We're always in a hurry. We're ever busy. We work, work, work. And simultaneously, the anxiety industry is sky high. 
You know why? Because our bodies are screaming at us, I was not made for this. Why, and I use this example, why are we so happy on vacations? Because for a few days, we simply are. We're here, and we're now, and we're not in a hurry. How many of us are anxious on vacation? Very few. You know why? Because we've set aside a time for us to just be present in the moment and not in a hurry. But then we get back to our lives that we've built to be always in a hurry, and we wonder why we're so stressed, and we dread getting back into those lives, and yet we just mosey right back into them. Like, like, you know what I mean? Does that ever strike you? It's like, man, I can't stand how busy I am, and then we'll fill up our calendars to make us busy. Like, you, you know what you got? You got authority to say no. <laughs> and the world will keep running, and your job will still be there, and if it's not, another job will be there. There's more jobs right now than there are people. You know what I'm saying? So, but, but it's like, but we, we, this is something right now that the Lord, this is what I said in word, the Lord, I believe, really tried to teach us the first time we went through this COVID stuff, and we did not get it, and now he's given us the blessing of another time through the COVID stuff. And he'll give us four or five or six or seven or eight more times until we understand that we've got to be people of rest. Maybe when Jesus says, unless you lose your life, you'll never find it, he meant it. This, this is a major part of this childlike revelation. For the child, for a kid, there is simply now. And who I am as a kid and what I do in the now is simply good. Bless you. The beloved identity that we've been talking about for three and a half years now will always be out of reach if we cannot learn to be okay just being us. The now us, the hear us, and that takes trust. Anyone can envy our culture's idols, but it takes guts to be happy and fulfilled right where you are. Like I told you, I was going to be a little different. I'm going to pr- try to pronounce this guy's name. I'm going to give you a quote. It's um, Vitslav Gardovsky. He was a Czech philosopher and a martyr, ultimately, for the gospel. But in the 1970s, and I believe the book is called God's Not Dead Yet, or God's Not Yet Dead, um, which isn't what the title sounds like. It's, it's a really good writing. But in that writing, um, in that book, he writes this. He says, the terrible threat that we face is that we might die earlier than we really die. Before death has become a natural necessity, the real Horror lies in just such a premature death, a death after which we go on living for many years. What he's saying is, is the threat that we face, and he goes on in this book and talks about the threat that we face is not epidemics, it's not pandemics, it's not you know sicknesses, it's not global warming. All that stuff is legitimate things. But the actual threat that we face is that we would stop living before we actually die. You know what I mean? Because there's so, I mean, think about it. There's so many people who are avoiding physical death that died years ago. And Jesus said, unless you lose your life, you'll never lose what life? The one that stinks. The one that's boring. The one that's always stressed because of what's coming up and misses completely what's in now. 
You know what I mean? Uh, that's the life you want to get rid of. He's not just talking about the sin. He's not just talking about you know, the life where you used to look at stuff you shouldn't look at and smoke stuff you shouldn't smoke and all that stuff. That's included. But it also includes anxiety. It also includes depression. It also includes all this other stuff, not living up to other people's standards. It includes all that because in that life, we were living for a facade. We were a facade living to strengthen another facade. And never real. And no one lives in the moment. No one lives in right now. And that's why we can't win the world. We have tried and tried and tried and tried and tried and tried to spread the gospel. And it hasn't worked. And the reason we haven't worked, the reason it hasn't worked, is because the way we spread the gospel is if you come into this, God's going to make all your dreams come true. You're going to be big famous. And they got into this and realized, oh, wait, I'm not going to be big and famous. You know what I'm saying? That was never the goal. The goal was for you to be so born again that you can be present as a father or a mother or an employee or an employer. You can be so present that that becomes the kingdom of God. That you can be happy doing what everybody else calls mundane. Maybe it's not mundane. Let me ask you this. And this is my philosopher's side coming out. Who gets to define what mundane is? Yeah, you, exactly. But, but I mean, do you ever think about this? It's like we, we live lives that we call subpart. Subpart of who? Who, like, who, who? who is on their high and mighty throne that said this is how you should live? Because Jesus came to announce a kingdom that the last will be first. He came to say all the stuff down here that you had no value for, I've come to make the most valuable thing in the kingdom. So the, the mundane electrician, dude, like you, let me, let me just, let me just, let me just brag on you for a minute, Bryson. So Bryson came over to our house and installed a ceiling fan. Bryson is amazing at what he does. So if y'all need some help, hit him up. But, and he's turning red. Amazing what he does. But he came and put a fan up for us because I didn't know how. And so, uh, so he came and did that, took time out of his day, all that stuff, and then went home. And that blessed us like crazy. Like, you have no idea how much that blessed us, you taking that time out to do that. Even my daughter. You know what I'm saying? And if we're not careful, we'll see stuff like that and be like, hey, man, he's, he's doing great. But Josh, man, or whoever else, you know, Bethel, whoever, man, they're doing amazing ministry. No. I'm doing ministry with you and you and you and you and you and everybody else doing what you're called to do now. You know what I'm saying? Just because I'm up here with a Bible and a mic does not make me any better than an electrician. In fact, you're doing more for the kingdom probably on most days than I am. Do you know what I'm saying? But it's just this, this, this mentality that we're always living to be somebody big. And the reason people want to be pastors is because today pastors have cameras in their faces and lights in their faces. Nobody wanted to be a pastor before that, right? Which is exactly why when this pandemic's over, that camera won't be there. <laughs> right? You know what I'm saying? But that we'll, ne we'll never have the ability to live in our beloved identity unless we learn to be okay with being beloved identity. So I'm going to read um, in Luke 8, and I'm going to start at verse 40. And I want you to see, if Jesus had, if anybody ever in history had an excuse to be looking ahead, it was Jesus. No one has ever had the assignment to bring a new kingdom into the entire globe to every human being, past, present, and future. That's as big of an assignment as you can get. And so if I'm Jesus and I've got three years of ministry, not 40, not 50, three, 
the Son of God, three years of ministry. If I've got three years of ministry, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to draw all these crowds. I'm not going to worry about the individuals. I don't got time. Draw all these crowds, and I'm going to preach for three years. I'm going to die. I'm going to peace out, and the church is going to explode. And yet, when you read the gospel, you see Jesus running from the crowds and going to these people that the culture said were worth absolutely nothing and putting, we would say, maybe wasting his time with those people. Why would he do that? Well, let's check this out. So Luke 8, I'm going to start at verse 40, and I'm going to read you two accounts that are kind of tied together. So really amazing. I'm going to try not to chase some rabbits because there's a lot in here. But from the NIV, I'm going to take this drink and I'll read it. Okay. Now, Jesus returned. A crowd welcomed him. This is after he restores the demon-possessed man who's a Gentile. Amazing story. Go back and read it. But Jesus returned. A crowd welcomed him for they were all expecting him. Then a man named J- uh, Jairus, or Jairus, some people say, a synagogue leader came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his daughter, his only daughter, a girl about 12, really crucial, was dying. Okay? So Jesus comes back. He's on the, Can you please come to my house? My daughter's dying. So Jesus, as he was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. So many people. And a woman who was, or excuse me, a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. So the amount of time that Jairus' daughter um, was alive was the exact amount of time this woman was dealing with the issue of blood. So no one could heal her. She came behind him, came up behind him. And touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. But they all denied it. Peter said, Master, there are people crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could, she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people... She told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Verse 48. Then he said to her, Daughter, key, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader, and said, Your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus said to him, don't be afraid, just believe and she will be healed. The word believe there, pistis, is trust. Don't be afraid, trust and she will be healed. Or trust that she will be healed. Verse 51. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, listen to this, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Jesus said, stop wailing She's not dead, but asleep. It's the same language that Paul uses for the dead. Those who are asleep. Okay, This language is huge because it's pointing to resurrection. If somebody's asleep, they're going to wake up. Right? So they're mourning because she's dead, and there's this sense of she's gone from them. Okay? Because in this culture... 
um, mythology and Plato and all these other thoughts were running rampant that when people die, there's this spirit that separates and floats away and they're never the same again, right? So they're mourning because they believe this daughter has just gone through this. And Jesus says, no, 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 don't mourn. Stop wailing. She's not dead. She's asleep. In other words, she's about to be woken up. She's asleep for the purposes of being woken up. Amazing. Verse 53, they laughed at him knowing she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, my child. What's the first thing he says to the woman with the issue of blood? Daughter. Okay? Took her by the hand. My child, get up. Her, and I'm going to explain this because this is just a little side note I've got to hit. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. The word spirit there is pneuma, the Greek word pneuma. And uh, it's also where we eventually get the word pneumonia from. So breath, okay? The word pneuma means breath of life, okay? And the word pneuma is used when it talks about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Breath, the Holy Wind. It could be translated as well. So when it says her spirit returned to her, what Luke is talking about and what has actually happened to this girl is not her ghost floated back into her body, okay? It's that the breath of life she had been knit together with instantly returned into her. Her life was illuminated again by the breath that comes from God, and she awakened, okay? So I just want to explain that because sometimes you'll read through this stuff and you'll be like, oh, there it is, the ghost. So it's not. Um, but let me just point out a couple things here. Number one, Jesus was very busy, a very busy man on a very busy mission if he wanted to be, right? And instead stops in the middle of what he's doing with all these crowds press, pressing around him, the crowds welcoming him, all expecting him to do something amazing. And he has the audacity to them to leave the crowds and go to the home of this man and pray for this daughter who, before he got there, was dead. You know what I mean? What's the point in Jesus doing this? The girl's already dead. He doesn't even need to come anymore. Jesus is going out of his way to do something that everybody else in their minds is like, this is a gigantic waste of time. She's already dead. While he's on the way there, as these crowds are pushing in around him, a woman who was kicked out of the club, kicked out of the religious circle, kicked out of the synagogue because of her issues, she was a, an outsider, climbs through the cl- crowd, and the funny thing to think about is that every single person she touched, according to the law, would have been made unclean. So, really funny little, little side note. But anyway, so she's making everybody unclean, climbing through the crowds, and gets to the bottom and touches Jesus and instantly is healed. Jesus is so in the moment that even though Peter says, Master, like all these people are crushing around you, of course somebody touched you. Everybody's touching you. But Jesus is so in the moment that he says, no, you don't understand. Somebody touched me. You know what I mean? I mean like, I, and, and I'm going to get into what Jesus did as well. But I, I really want to just, just hang out right here for the moment. The, the striking thing about Jesus is that even though he only had a few years to transform the cosmos, he was willing to be present and waste time with those that religion said there was no time for. 
that religion said they weren't even worth time being spent on them. Jesus wasted his time with the ones that the religious people had no time for, which gives us a little insight into what Jesus was doing. And if you were here Tuesday night, we had a great conversation about this. If you weren't, sorry, we did not record it. Um, But to summarize, Jesus was not bringing a new religion. Everybody like cool with that? You know what I'm saying? Jesus did not bring to bring the religion of Christianity. You know, like, Lord, he didn't do that. Jesus was establishing a, I would say, new covenant. I would say a deeper covenant. The Old Testament and the New Testament are one story, okay? Just to give you a little little background to um, Tuesday night. The Old Testament and the New Testament are one story. They're not different stories. God wasn't angry here, and suddenly he had a heart change and, you know, loving here. That's not the story. The story of the Old Testament and the New Testament are the same story. The same God who he says over and over and over and over in the Old Testament, I am the Lord, I do not change. And then you get all the way to Hebrews, and Hebrews says of Jesus Christ, who is also the Lord, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God doesn't change. So the Old Testament and the New Testament are the same story. If we're seeing a different story, we're seeing wrong. It's not that the story's wrong. It's not that the story's different. It's that we're seeing the story that is the same wrong. So if you read the law and you say, my Lord, the Lord was angry. No, no, no. We need to back up. And we need to say, what was the Lord doing in giving them this covenant? What he was doing was saying, you are my covenant people Therefore, here is my covenant. Not, if you keep my covenant, you will be my covenant people. He says, you are my covenant people, therefore here's my covenant. So if you read the Old Testament story all the way into the New Testament, and we get the luxury of this because we know how the story plays out for Israel, if you read the story all the way through, they start out Abraham, who is a nobody, who worships other gods, who comes from the Ur of Chaldeans, worships all these other fantasy crazy gods. The Lord finds him and he says, you know what, Abraham? I'm going to give you the promise of all the future. Why? No reason. I'll just choose you. Or maybe it was because Abraham was the absolute least likely person to get that. Either way, Abraham, promise. Jacob comes through. He has a bunch of kids. They have a bunch of kids. They flourish in Egypt. They become the people of Israel. They go into the wilderness. The Lord gives them this covenant. And how do they respond to the covenant? Over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, they turn away from it and they reject it. Over and over and over. Even while they're getting the covenant, they build this cow. I mean, they ain't even gotten it yet. You know what I'm saying? So this is how they respond. So how does Jesus, God, respond to, because this really breaks the narrative. If the Old Testament God is angry and he's ready to punish, Jesus does not fit that story. You know what I'm saying? Lightning and fire and all that other stuff fits. But God sees Israel go all through the Old Testament. They get the covenant. They're unfaithful. They're unfaithful. They're unfaithful. They're unfaithful. They're unfaithful. And here's how God He says, you know what? Here's how I'm going to respond to your unfaithfulness. I'm going to become you. I'm going to be faithful on your behalf. And then I'm going to let you taste the fruit of what it means to be faithful. Jesus, the word becomes flesh and dwells in us. That's how he responds, right? Amazing, okay? So why am I saying that? Sinners, sinners in the New Testament to the religious ones are those who are unclean. Sinners to Jesus 
are the religious ones. Well, brother, how are you going to prove that? Well, because every single person he calls wicked is the religious ones. At no point, go read, I promise you, go read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. At no point does he look at a prostitute or a woman with issue of blood and say, you know what, you're real wicked. At no point. Calls him daughter. And then go back and read every single time he calls somebody wicked or brood of vipers or sons of Satan. Go back and read that and see who he's talking about. He's talking about the Pharisees and the religious people. That should really mess with us a little bit, at least. You know what I'm saying? Because we've called the people outside the church wicked, and Jesus called the people inside the church that are pretending wicked. At least those outside the church have an identity. I I mean, so he came to preach the good news to the poor. Well, what's the good news to the poor? The good news to the poor is that you've been outcast by religion in the name of the law. I've come to fulfill the law and show you that the point of all of it was so that you who were outcast could actually be the ones leading it. The last shall be first. Right? So this woman was unclean. On top of that, Jesus was going to the house of a girl who was dead, which would have made him also unclean by getting near a person who was dead. So he's breaking all the norms. But he's going out of his way in the face of breaking all the systems that religion had built because Jesus has this this DNA of being ever present. He's willing to waste time on people that nobody else is willing to spend time on. Do you, I mean, if you just read the Gospels, it shocks you. Zacchaeus is climbing up in a tree, and Jesus comes, and he could have with full integrity said, Zacchaeus, I bless you, buddy, and left. And that still would have been, that probably would have been included in the Gospels. It would have been an amazing story. Zacchaeus probably would have heard that and sold everything still. But Jesus says, you know what? I'm going to come eat at your house tonight. And the disciples got to be saying, Jesus, Lord, like, <laughs> we don't got time for this. You know what I'm saying? And we, we know this because when he feeds the, uh, the 5,000, they go to Jesus and they say, hey, Jesus, time to send them all home. And Jesus says, no, we're going to feed them. And they're like, with what? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We, we can't feed them. But you, you just see this over and over and over and over and over in the life of Jesus. And in verse 45, I just want to like, I want to mention this and I'm going I'm to start wrapping it up. In verse 45, when the, uh, when the Greek or when the English says touch, so let, me, let me just read this real quick because this is huge. Um, Jesus said, who touched me? But they all denied it. Peter said, master, people are crowding around you. The word touch in the Greek is haptomai, haptomai. And the word means to touch, okay, to clasp, or to cling. But the Greek word haptomai is a form of the root word of that, which is hapto. And the word hapto means to kindle or to light a fire. Okay? So the the word haptomai, when it says, who touched me? So back up, okay? Jesus was going, crowds were crushing him. Um, The woman came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. It's a word that is, she grabbed onto it, but at the root of it, because of her grabbing onto it, it kindled a fire. Twofold, okay? There there was something Jesus, and this, this is exactly why Jesus is so struck by what has just left him. 
because it wasn't just healing that flowed out of him. There was something when she, in complete trust, grabbed hold of that bottom of his cloak, when she grabbed hold of it, something in the identity of Jesus was transferred into the identity of this woman. It wasn't just healing. There was a fire that left the bones of Jesus and entered into this. And that's why when the woman comes up, she's terrified. Why is she terrified? She was unclean. So she's terrified because do you know what's happened to this woman her whole life? Anytime she's gotten near a religious person, which to her, Jesus was just another religious person at that point, right? Every time she got near a religious person, they rejected her, they spit on her, they sent her out into a place to be completely by herself because she was unclean. So when she realizes the jig's up, like, I'm going to have to tell Jesus it was me, in her mind, what's rolling through it is rejection. After rejection, after rejection, knowing she's about to be rejected again. I mean, think about this. She is knowing. It's just like if you, if you were I mean, in, in an abusive relationship, right? And then somebody else that you get into a relationship with starts showing signs of the person that you were in an abusive relationship with. That fear that would rise up of like, oh man, this is happening again, is what she's, is what she's experiencing. And so uh, she came trembling and fell at his feet, the presence of all the people. So all the people are sitting around saying, yeah, she's about, she's about to get it. I can't believe she just did that. You know, in the presence of all of them. And this is what Jesus does. Jesus does. <clears throat> Trembling at his feet, presence of all the people. She told Jesus why she had touched him, but how she had been instantly healed. And Jesus looks at her. Now, can you imagine? I, I, like, I, just, I really need you to see this. Can you imagine after all thousands, I mean, she's 12 years, thousands of times she's been rejected, looking into the eyes of Jesus, expecting rejection, and the first thing she hears is, daughter. <laughs> can you imagine that? Can, I mean, can you imagine year after year after year after year after year after year, people spitting on her, losing everything? Daughter. Your trust, pistis, your trust has healed you. And the word healed is not just like has, um, you know, your, your issue of bleeding is gone. The word healed is a, there's something that's happened on the inside of her in totality that has been made whole. So he's saying your trust has healed you. Healed you of what? Your issue of disease? Absolutely. Your issue of blood? Absolutely. But what's really been healed is when Jesus locked eyes with this woman and says, daughter, every broken piece of her identity that was caused by rejection was suddenly made whole. And she was healed of the blood stuff too. Matt, you can go ahead and come up here. So why, why am I walking through all this? And like I said, I know it's really different and I struggle with this because I was like, Lord, this is some big revelation. But it is. And it's that we, I mean, like in the churches that, that I grew up in, that I love. I mean, I, I love praying for people. I love giving people words. I love prophesying. I love the whole thing. But how many times have we, have we seen people and we've seen their issues and we've seen our time and we've seen how busy we are and we're so unable to live in the now that we can't see what's actually going on, which was not the issue of blood. 
The issue of blood was easy for Jesus. But what Jesus came to do was not just heal a bunch of people of their sicknesses. He did that, and we should do that, and that's amazing. But the reason he healed people of their sicknesses was so that he could get down into the guts of the identity that had been broken to pieces and say, daughter. If her issue of blood had not been there, she would have never climbed through the crowds, had never climbed up to Jesus, had never had the faith to touch, and had never had the locked eyes moment where Jesus looks at her and says, you're not an outcast, you're actually daughter. And then, what does he do? He leaves there, goes to the house where the dead girl is, or they think she's dead, right? And she is dead. The, the asleep is a way of, of talking about dead for the purposes of resurrection. So he goes to the house. He brings his closest people in, the father and mother. Everybody's screaming and wailing because this little girl has died. And Jesus says she's not dead, takes her by the hand, and what does he say? Get up! No, no, no. My child, get up. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, not just get up. Something was left down. When Jesus goes to this house and the girl's asleep, he doesn't just tell her to get up. He tells an identity to get up. He doesn't say, get up. He says, my daughter, get up. So what was left down? Any piece of this girl that did not see herself as daughter was left down. And in one section, this is just one section of Scripture, there are two people that in our culture today, we wouldn't even post on social media about because it's just two people. That Jesus stopped everything to be so present in the moment. Because he could have just, because he's done this. He could have just said, you know what? I'll send word. All these crowds are here. She's healed. Daughter, you're healed. Or one with issue of blood, you're healed. Keep going. But Jesus stopped in the moment. He locked eyes with both of these people, both of which were 12 years old, which is very significant. 12 years with the issue and 12 years old of the girl, okay? Which is, very, is representative of Israel. So when he's speaking to these two girls, 24, I mean, uh, 24, 12 and 12, it's as if he's looking into Israel saying, daughter, your faith is, your trust has healed you. Daughter, get up. So I want you to hear this. What if, when he's looking at this 12-year-old girl and he says, my child, get up. What does Isaiah say? Isaiah says that the Messiah is coming to, can I, let me just, just, just real, real fast, real fast, real fast. Because y'all good? Okay. Thank you. Um, I'll, I'll just, just listen to this. Isaiah 9, one of my favorite, favorite, favorite passages of all time. He says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, in the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Natali, but in the future he will honor Galilee. 
of the nations by way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation, increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. That's it. As in the day of Midian's defeat, you've shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders and the rod of their oppressor. He's not talking about Rome. What, what have you shed? What yoke has burdened them? What bar has been across their shoulders and what rod has oppressed them? Hammart sin. Formlessness. Loss of identity. Okay? Every warrior's boot. Here's how you want to know something about spiritual warfare. Check this out. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. For They will be fuel for the fire. Why? For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful. Can, can you, man, I, I cannot stress this enough. I got to save my place right here. Can you, um, this is Israel. This is God's people. And they're so burdened down by the fact that they completely have forgotten who they are. And God looks at them and says, there's coming a day when I'm going to respond to you losing everything that you know you are. And here's what I'm going to respond with. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He'll reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that day on and forever. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. And here comes this boy, this child. Unto us, this child is born. Here comes this child raised up, and he goes to a little girl who is 12 years old, and he looks at her, and I, I just, I don't know this. I can't prove this. Maybe I can a little bit. But he's looking at the eyes of this little girl who had died. 12 years old. Just like Israel. What did I say in the beginning? This quote, let me just quote this real quick because this is, this is everything that I wanted to come to say today. The terrible threat we face is that we might die earlier than we really die before death has become a natural necessity. The real horror lies in just such a premature death, a death after which we go on living for many years. How do you define death? Is it when you stop breathing or is it when you stop being? How do you define the death of a nation? Is it when it ceases to exist or is it when it ceases to exist? Jesus is looking into the eyes of this girl who was asleep, representing the entire nation of his people, which ultimately represented all his people, all of them who had fallen asleep. And he says, I don't want that to get up. My daughter, my child, get up. 
What did Isaiah 9 say? Here's what he'll be called. Everlasting Father. Right? My child, get up. And what happens after this? What happens after this? Her breath of life returns and she sits up. And when that happens, he says, eat. (laughs) The command they're given, when they go into the land, the thing that marks them going into the promised land, Israel, is the fact that they're no longer eating manna, but they're eating from the land. That's, if you go back and read it, that is the thing that marks it. So he says, my child, my people, my real authentic people, I found you when you were nothing and made you, I'm quoting the Old Testament, and made you the prized possession of the world. That, my child, get up. And when he speaks this, the breath of life returns. She sits up and she eats. Well, Josh, what are you talking about? Here's what I'm talking about. Is that if we're not careful, we will get so into this life of living for something or a time other than now that we're going to miss the daughter's that we're called to look in their eyes and say, my kid, his kid, get up. Like, you don't get to do that over a text. And this is convicting me. Oh, this whole message is convicting me. You don't get to do that over a Instagram post. You have to do that through being in the moment and wasting your time. Here's, here's a, and I'm, it's not wasting, but you know what I'm saying. But here's th- something I, I want us to maybe maybe make a normal idea is that we're okay wasting time. What do you mean, being lazy? I'm absolutely, I'm talking about the opposite of that. I think it's lazy for us to completely miss what's happening now for something that's a fantasy. That's lazy. Here, it, this is, what I'm talking about is us being so present, trusting everything else is gonna be taken care of that we can actually be who we really are. You know what I mean? That we're, we're not fantasizing. It's okay to dream, but it's not okay to dream if it comes at the expense of you being who you are right now. The Lord has you exactly where you are, exactly as you are right now, not because he made a mistake and not because he's in a, you're in a transition period. He has you where you are right now because you're designed to be where you are right now. And that might result in a different thing. It probably will. Our church is not going to be the same in 40 years as it is right now. But I'm not going to so focus on what's happening 40 years from now that I'm going to miss the now or else I'm going to miss what's happening 40 years from now. You see this? So we can't, when, when we're in prayer, the reason we struggle with prayer is because we can't just be in a moment without thinking about something we're missing. You know what I'm saying? Why can't, why can't you go right now? Why can't you go home and spend an hour in prayer? Well, because I got work coming up. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I, I would I'll say a few other words, but I can't. I know kids are watching. Forget the work. Jesus said this. <laughs> Seek first the kingdom, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Don't worry about tomorrow. Today has enough trouble on its own. He's not talking about trouble. He's not talking about today. You got, you're dealing with enough today. That's not what he's saying. He's saying today's got enough stuff for you to live in on its own. It's got enough stuff for you to work through on its own. Stop thinking about tomorrow. You might not even get tomorrow. Worry, worry about now, right now. And so 
This is a very different message, but I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray the Lord gives us the grace to live in the moment. Because if we don't, if we can't live right now, we're never going to be content. We're never going to live in our identity, and we're never going to. we got to slow down. The church has to slow down. There's all these different movements that the church has tried to dip its toe in and get through and have an impact in. And we're not going to have an impact in it unless we slow down and take our time and be healthy and pastors be healthy and people be healthy and us live in this unconditional space. Yeah, I mean, like, we, we, talk, we talked about racism for a year and a half. You know how we fix racism? By sitting down with somebody and taking the, and wasting your time. And obviously I'm not talking about wasting it in a bad way, in a good way. You can post on social media all you want, and it'll be great, and everybody will cheer. But obviously that's done nothing. Or you could take an hour and a half and sit down with somebody, even though you might have other things to do, and waste your time having a conversation. And I promise you if we did that, you wouldn't have to post on social media because we'd actually be doing something. You know, you know what I'm saying? Or feeling any, anything. So I, I'm just going to pray the Lord would do that in us going into the week, and then we'll be done. Lord, I pray right now that you would just begin to rewire everything in us to be present, to be now, right now, to stop being in a hurry, because I believe the reason, I've struggled this week with why you're giving us this right now. I have. But, but now, right now in the moment, just praying, I really believe the reason you're doing this is because there is a measure of intimacy that you want us to be invited into that we've not had before. There's a depth that you want to invite us into that we have not had before, and the reason we haven't had it before is because of the wineskin. We've been in too big of a hurry to get this kind of wine. And so what you're doing right now is you're rebaptizing the wineskin you're rebaptizing the identity in the anointing oil of us understanding that when you called us beloved, you meant that everything we are is beloved and we can rest. There's no more striving. I love the line in that song, Jireh, the first verse. I wasn't holding you up, so there's nothing I could do to let you down. That, that is what you're doing in us. And as you do that in us, then you can invite us into the level of intimacy where there's no hurry, where there is no forcing. The message translation, where you're bringing us into the unforced rhythms of grace. That's where the load is easy and the burden's light. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burden, heavy laden, and I'll give you rest in return. But we can't receive rest if we see rest as something that is too unbusy for us. But we're, we're going to be there. I speak over you a confidence to let things fall. And again, I'm not talking about lazy. I'm talking about you living so in the moment that you maybe miss a meeting because one meeting runs over because you're not willing to leave that moment until it's finished. And trusting, trusting 
that as you do that, the Lord's going to come in on the back end and make the next meeting that you miss more fruitful when you get together with them than it would have been had you cut it short. I mean, I don't, whatever, however this relates to you, but the Lord is, is, is just slowing us down, making us unbusy, making us people that aren't in a hurry, making us people that live in the moment. And as we do that, I promise you, as a spiritual dad today, I promise you that we're going to see what no eye has seen. What, what if the Lord, let me just, what if the Lord wants to show you something that you've never seen before, but where that thing is found in a sunset? And the test for you being able to receive that is whether or not you're willing to sit still long enough to look into a sunset. There's a song by Jason Upton, and it's called Finding Jesus. I think Jason Upton's been maybe the most prophetic person in my life lately over old songs. But in that song, he says, and I'm quoting wrong probably, but he says, um, I woke up this morning to the sound of my baby's laughter, and in that I'm finding Jesus. Think, I mean, think about this. Think about this. Today in my class, I, I just sat and listened to the papers of a textbook flip. And in that, I'm finding Jesus. I didn't jaywalk through every single red light because I was in a hurry at every single red. I know this is funny, but this is what, I, this is what we do. At every single place where it said, do not walk, I stopped and I just took in nature. And there I'm finding Jesus. I showed up to church with no agenda. Maybe I didn't even show up with a notebook. I just showed up to hear the breath again and there I'm finding Jesus we, we, we are going to be people we have to be we've got to be people who are so other than the culture that's holiness so other than the culture that we live every moment in the moment and then you know what we're going to do instead of striving to win the future we're going to inherit the future So Yahweh, I, I just I pray that over us. I pray that you would do something in this family that is very radical, very radical. And if you asked me two and a half years ago, I would have thought that was something very different than I think now, but I'll take this. I'll take this. And so Lord, we love you and we thank you that you've never been in a hurry with us. We thank you that when the identity within us was dead, you took time to sit and stare into our childness and spoke to it and said, get up. So Lord, we honor you and love you in your name. Amen. Amen.